The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. The sun is the solution to many of our energy challenges and the ability to harvest solar power and deliver it where it is uh, and when it is exists. You know, we just need to start using it and we know how to use it. Our listeners know how to use it. And SunGrow's cutting edge technology for residential, commercial and large scale energy generation helps you utilize it. You can find more about SunGrow's inverter products that are being deployed around the world at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower designs and manufactures the 15-volt Mark I energy storage system, which offers best-in-class safety features, market-leading energy density, and low installation and operation costs. CorePower's modules are now on the market, and you can find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E, power.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. For the first time, China, the country currently pouring the most carbon into the atmosphere by far, makes a promise to get to net zero emissions. 40 years from now. Is it a breakthrough or is it a plan to keep burning coal? Is it both? We'll hash it out. Then the governor of California wants to stop selling any new cars that run on gasoline in 15 years. It's ambitious. Can it be done? Is it legal? What will it take? And last, a flurry of serious commitments from top American brands, Walmart, Google, Apple. Each of these sustainability and climate commitments is super challenging for a different reason, but also groundbreaking. We will dig in. And digging in with me, per usual, are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine's the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's in Arlington, Virginia. Hello, Catherine. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. Jigger Shah is president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's there in Bethesda, Maryland. Hello, Jigger. Hello. So um, we were planning to start the show talking about the presidential debate. And then I looked at my phone this morning at 4 a.m., and uh, there are only two people who would text me at 4 a.m. Ingrid, our senior <laughs> editor, <laughs> or Apple News. And I got this news alert showing that the president and the first lady have COVID. And uh, I'm just not really sure where to start the show anymore. Reactions. Oh, man. Mm. Well, you know, I, I mean, irony comes to mind. But uh, obviously, I hope they have a full recovery without a lot of bad uh, uh, side effects. I mean, it's it's been such a week, right? I mean, that debate was crazy. Yeah, so let's go to the debate. Uh, we were all watching it. We were texting each other. I don't know if you can call it a debate. Uh, I wanted to mention it because climate actually got a very strong mention from moderator Chris Wallace. And a lot of people were critical of Chris Wallace during that shouting match. But later in the debate, he asked a climate question and he actually like, kept hammering it. And I thought he did a pretty good job. Just wondering uh, if either of you have reactions to how it was addressed and how it was talked about. Catherine? 
Yeah. I mean, other than the fact that by then I had like a splitting headache and my 19 year old who's obsessed with voting and obsessed with politics had finally gotten up and said, I can't listen to this anymore. This is so awful. Um, so, so, you know, I was trying so hard to listen to any like little bits of actually policy discussion that you could get a hold of. And this was one where, you know, while Joe Biden wasn't perfect and we could have given him a zillion more words to use, I thought it was really good that he mentioned weatherization and buildings and clean cars and we can get to net zero by 2035 and create millions of new jobs. I thought that those messages were really important that he said that because the response from the president was was just unintelligible. He was, I don't know what he was talking about, forest cities. I, I could not figure that out. Inshallah. <laughs> uh, Jigger, what did you think? <laughs> you know, I, I thought that it was good that Chris Wallace pushed I do think that it was disappointing that the president basically kept saying that, you know, Californians are not doing a good enough job keeping the forest clean of debris. You know, it it didn't really acknowledge that California is probably going to have a trillion dollars of losses from this year's climate disasters or climate, you know, enhanced disasters. And while I think that, you know, Joe Biden's response around how we can do a lot of things here was interesting and valuable. I continue to believe that we find it hard to have real inspirational, forward-looking uh, conversations about climate. And um, it frustrates me. Yeah. So I think the d debate was dark. It was dismal, universally panned, uh, a real travesty. And it just shows where American democracy is at the moment. But I found a small itsy beatsy light uh, when I was listening to the climate portion for a couple of reasons. One was I thought Chris Wallace did a very good job of continuing to press Trump on whether he thought climate change was human caused. And I, I mean, he there were a lot of questions that they got sidetracked on that he didn't keep pushing on. But for some reason, he kept laser focused on climate change. And that surprised and delighted me. Um, there was one thing that Trump said. He had unintelligible answers generally, which was, uh, you know, totally expected. But he talked about how much he loves clean air. He talks about how much he loves electric vehicles. Uh, he talks about how they have a plan to plant a bunch of trees. He partially admitted that climate change was human caused. And the reason why he's doing that, you know, think about how much he lies about. The reason why he's doing that is because Basically, every single poll shows that conservatives understand climate change is happening. They love electric vehicles. They love rooftop solar power. And this is stuff that we've been talking about for years and years and years. But it filters into the president's brain and he feels like he has to at least acknowledge that he likes that stuff, even if it comes out in an incoherent way. So I, I felt like that that was some sliver of positivity. Yeah, slightly disingenuous because certainly the administration has single-handedly been killing the electric car credit. Yes. So, you know. Wait, I thought you said, I thought we had immaculate air and immaculate water. <laughs> I mean, you know, is that similar to immaculate conception? I, I don't know. Honestly, the whole thing like was, I, I feel like he sets the bar so low that when he gives us morsels of positivity, we're like, Oh. <laughs> I'm trying, Dick Jigger. I'm trying. I'm trying. It was just such a dark week that I need to find some level of positivity. Uh. So let's move on to China. China is the number one emitter of carbon dioxide on Earth. 
It has been the number one emitter for 15 years. But China made a powerful statement of intention to do its part to decelerate climate change recently. Sometime before 2060, it plans to stop adding any more carbon to the atmosphere. And that came from a speech in front of the United Nations, from Xi Jinping recently. Um, and, And this target is much stronger than pretty much any other developed country has made. You know, forget about the U.S. Federal policy is non-existent. And what it means is China is going to spend far, far fewer years as a polluter, as the largest polluter than Europe or the United States did. And yet China is a major force for coal extraction in the world today. It doesn't plan to stop. Recently on this show, we talked about how China just amped up Pakistan's coal sector and opened the country's first coal mine. That's in addition to many, many, many new plants it's building at home. And if these plants last 50 years and CO2 lasts more than 100 years in the atmosphere, then China is currently baking in centuries of amplified damage, even with this flashy target. So, Jigger, what did China announce? So it was actually a big surprise. Um, I don't think people thought it was coming. But when President Xi Jinping of China uh, addressed the UN General Assembly, he basically said that that China would try to get to net zero by 2060. And if you remember, Xi Jinping already made an announcement uh, with the Obama administration uh, back in um, you know 2014 2015, saying that they would try to peak their carbon emissions by 2030, and so they haven't really moved that timeline in this announcement. It looked like he was sort of saying he'd like to do it before 2030 now, which is nice. It's really that they're committing to get to zero by 2060. That is the actual news. And I'd say that the other part of this is remember China is the number one financier of coal plants uh, around their belt uh, initiative, et cetera. So my sense is is that um, they were kind of silent on that part of it. So I think people are guessing that in the new five-year plan that's coming up, that there will be a lot of bold steps that are taken. Um, My own sense of it is that I'm less excited about this announcement than most others are, because I feel like, not unlike the previous discussion, China sets such a low bar that I feel like sometimes we cheer every time when they say something interesting. But, you know, it's welcome news all the, all the same. Where does Catherine Hamilton's excitement meter on China land? Yeah, so it's definitely a vision. And as Jigger says, it's going, the proof is going to be into what are the tangible actions they take, because they do have this early next year, this five-year energy plan will come out that will have a lot of those details in it. And then also remember under the Paris Agreement, their energy and emissions targets uh, for 2025 also have to ramp up. So that's all part of it. I reached out to Justin Gway with the Sunrise Project, who does a lot of work on coal. And, you know, he is saying, just remember, the president, the leader of the country is the North Star. And what that means is that all the bureaucrats for the provinces, all of those leaders then have to follow that lead. And those signals come very, very strongly from the top. And so far, the provinces have been absolutely incentivized to build stuff. So building coal plants is really easy for them. They can do that. And and they're incentivized to do so. And they have this sort of system where it's, you know, red light, yellow light, green light. And they had for a while put the brakes on coal. And now there are many, many more green lights because of less firm direction from the top. So we'll have to see where this goes on where they actually want to end up. But if the vision turns into this is what you have to do, 
then all the provincial bureaucrats will have to comply and will go forward. I, I will not forget a, about a year and a half ago when I was at the World Economic Forum, Fatih Barol made a comment that said, you know, China's building a lot of coal and they're going to be a lot of stranded assets that are not at the end of their lives. And I thought that was striking because basically what he was saying is they're going to have to close whether they're new or not. Now, Jigger, I agree with you that we tend to get excited about whatever China announces because there is a fairly low bar and also because they're just such a large monumental country that whatever they do does have a pretty sweeping impact around the world. Um, but I, you know, I've seen skepticism. For example, o- President Obama's chief climate negotiator, Todd Stern, who you know has worked very closely with China for many years, criticized the target on Twitter, saying, hey, this is a great step, but we obviously need to see a lot more details. And peaking emissions before 2030 is not good enough. They need to peak emissions well before that. And building any new coal plants is not good. So, you know, that's very different from what the Obama administration was saying, you know, just five or six years ago. Um, so there, there is more pressure underway, more public pressure. Um, you know, with that said, I think this is a very important announcement, regardless of whether or not we have a lot of detail yet, because of the geopolitics. As we've talked about before, climate is infused into international diplomacy in very real ways. And China is signaling to the rest of the world that it uh, is going to use climate to yeah, you know, uh, enhance its stance as a global superpower. And I think this gives China a lot more leverage. However, it plays out in, in detail. Uh, clearly, China has a much bigger seat at the table, both at climate negotiations and in, you know, all sorts of other international negotiations. Climate is a central piece to everything that countries are talking about now. Yes. And the U.S. has ceded leadership on that. So this is a great opportunity for China to step in and show some of that. Yeah, the thing I the thing I want to make sure that people maybe take from this is that the real hard problem that we have with the climate negotiations is really around this whole keep it in the ground movement. And I think China is basically saying that they're not going to keep it in the ground. That ultimately they believe that they have a right to burn all the coal that they have available and and use up all the infrastructure that they've built. And then in 2060, they'll get to zero. And when you look at the five-year plan, they're talking about coal power going from 57.5% to maybe 52% by the end of their five-year plan in 2025. Um, The other thing that comes out of that is that China, if you remember, is building out another 11 gigawatts of nuclear. And part of what they're saying is they think that that nuclear power is going to be delayed. And that's why coal is only going to drop to 52%. So I, one of the things that I find uh, frustrating, um, and it's not really about China, it's actually just about India and about all these other countries, is that we really are not winning the argument around telling people to just not burn whatever's left. They're sort of saying, when we're done burning what we have, then we will ramp up clean energy because we don't want to piss off the you know established industries in our community. Like one of the things that China did to pay off the coal uh, manufacturing lobby was this Belt and Road idea, right? I mean, part of the reason why they're building coal plants in Pakistan and other places is because they agreed not to build them in China 
but they had a whole bunch of people who needed jobs in their coal sector. And they said, well, why don't we export this technology to some of these other countries instead? And we'll finance over there because they're a powerful constituency. And, you know, I don't blame them for it, but it is really frustrating because I don't see how we stay below 1.5 degrees unless people are willing to um, strand uh, some of these uh, industries. Yeah, one thing I would note is that, as Jigger said, that China is the number one, both public and private financier of of coal plants in the world. Japan and South Korea were number two and number three, and they're getting out of it. So China is really like the lender of last resort. But one of the things that Justin highlighted to me was this Oxford Institute of Energy Studies report that shows that European and American investors are looking for returns on investment four times higher for coal because of climate risk. So these are called hurdle rates. So it used to be 16% for coal. Now it's 40% required return. Wind is only 10% and solar 15%. So there's a pretty big difference. So there's this issue of you know, the threat of lower asset values, stranded assets, higher operating costs, um, and then a huge demand for clean technology. So those are some of the forces that are working against anybody doing coal and certainly leaving China a little stranded. So Vox wrote a great explainer piece looking at what China would have to do to reach this target. And they cite a Rocky Mountain Institute report showing that in order to become carbon neutral, um, China's electricity generation will have to more than double to 15,000 terawatt hours as it electrifies the country. And then it's going to have to go from um, 90% coal power down to 7% coal power uh, and probably transition to a lot of natural gas and carbon capture technology, uh, along with a ton of renewable energy. And that is a Herculean effort, a historic effort. Um, And so the numbers here are quite vast. And, you know, as you mentioned, 90 percent of new coal projects in the first half of 2020 came in China. So they are not on a pathway to, you know, meeting what needs to be done. That's probably why they set this target out to 2060, because it allows them to build a lot more coal-fired power generation. So I think that the announcement is significant, but somewhat underwhelming when we consider the timeframes that we need in place. But I do stand by my assertion that this is a very big deal diplomatically. One note is that, you know, China has a COVID stimulus plan and their fossil fuel piece of that is three times more than for low carbon. And so they're investing in a lot of coal for chemicals, for rail, for all kinds of um, of other technologies that don't have necessarily anything to do with electric generation. Um, they're doing fossil oil refining, certainly coal to chemicals, coal transport, power and heat. So, you know, it, it's more than just uh, power generation. It's something we need to keep our eyes on. Yeah, I worry that these announcements are very similar to the utility announcements we see in the U.S. where they're saying, we're going to be at zero carbon by 2050. Oh, and by the way, we're building another five gigawatts of natural gas this quarter. And you're like, ah, you know, like it's really just to placate the masses and or their investors or whoever it is that they're placating. And they're they're going to kick the can down the road to like another premiere to sort of, you know, deal with it. I I, I I like the fact that China made the announcement. I just I just think that like given the wildfires in California and the wildfires in Australia and some of the things that we've witnessed over the last 12 months alone, I just feel like we're going like sort of off the deep end right now and people are acting as though we have time. 
Well, coming up after a quick break, no more new gasoline cars for sale in California when today's babies get their driver's licenses. First, a quick word about our sponsors. SunGrow is a leader in inverter production for renewable energy projects around the world. Their portfolio includes inverters for solar and storage, as well as everything to operate these components within a customer's budget and operate them efficiently. Their products seamlessly integrate into existing grids in accordance with all standards of certification. SunGrow PV inverters are operating up to 99% efficiency and fully compatible with newer bifacial solar modules. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. They are based in the U.S. and they are building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. The facility will leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. Core Power, with its partners, offers an end-to-end energy storage management solution, and their newly commissioned two-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently. Shipping product to customers for integration and testing, and you can get your hands on one at corepower.com. K O R E, corepower.com. We turn now to a major development for electric cars in America. Out of the ashes of California's horrendous fires, Governor Gavin Newsom declared that only EVs will be sold in the state by 2035. No more new gas powered cars after that date. It has not been a fantastic year for EVs in the U.S. They are selling very well in Europe and in China, thanks to incentives and a bunch of new choices. Sales here, on the other hand, apart from Tesla, are slow. They're down 11% in August from last year. Uh, You know, it's been a tough year because of COVID, but 2019 wasn't great as well. So will this mandate change the picture in any way? So, Catherine, what did Governor Newsom declare here in California by 2035? Yes, 100% of all new car sales will be electric. It is a big, big deal, especially given where they've been. So their current policy for light-duty vehicles goes to 2025, and it'll result in something like only about 8% of ZEV sales Um That year, ZEV, zero emissions vehicles. Right. ZEV being zero (laughs) emission vehicles. Right. And their goals were like 4.5% by 2018 and then 22% of 2025. And what that means is these are the percentages of cars sold by each car maker. So each car maker will have a different number because they'll, they're selling different numbers of cars into the market. So every car maker, the, every OEM has a different target. So it is a huge deal because they've only gotten to a certain level by now. They have a lot more to go. Um, so there's an, an enormous amount of acceleration. And there's some things that have to be in place to make that happen. But this is a very strong signal from the governor. Jigger, your thoughts on the announcement? Um. Yes, I think it's a very strong signal from the governor. I, in general, I think this is a goal. It's not a mandate. So I think I just want to make sure it's clear that that the governor can't mandate anything. So he's basically saying to the California Air Resources Board that I would like for you to put in place rules that make this ma- a mandate um, consistent with our climate uh, legislation. I'd say that, you know, my own belief is that we need to move faster. So I think we could actually move to 100% EVs sooner than 2035. Um, I actually think it would help 
solve a lot of problems in the state of California. There's a lot of people who talk about how, you know, doing this would use a lot more electricity and California had these electricity issues and wouldn't this make it worse? And in fact, it would make it better, right? Problem, the, the problem with all this stuff is that, um, is that the changes that we have to make to the grid to accommodate a decarbonized future are expensive, not because they're not cost effective, but just because it costs a lot of money. And if you are selling more kilowatt hours, which today we're not compared to 2003, then um, you can finance it easier while reducing electricity rates instead of increasing electricity rates. On top of that, you would then have all these other uh, batteries throughout the state that you could then use to provide more grid flexibility. So moving to this future faster is critical, um, which is why I think 2035 is too late. I think if you wait that long, it'll actually end up being that, um, you know, that you'll have to overspend on other grid infrastructure that you could have saved on had you moved to electric vehicles faster. Yeah, so there are a couple things I wanted to address in in what Jigger just said. One thing is I reached out to Evan Gillespie um, with a Beyond Coal campaign at the Sierra Club, and he did say that an executive order um, has held up legally in the past. I mean, this is very strong in that, true, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, has to promulgate regulations to comply with it. It only takes maybe a year, maybe two at the longest, and during that time, you know, what this target may in fact have to be negotiated on some level based on what where the OEMs are, but that this will hold up legally. So once CARB passes regulations, then all of those other states that fall under the Clean Air Act waiver under Section 177, those nine other states, in total making up 30% of the car sales in the U.S., would all also be able to follow those same rules. So it really sets that target. Now, a few things that we have to be, that have to be put into place, and Jigger has started that conversation, which is, one, is that the OEMs have to change their trajectory on how many EVs they're making. They're certainly talking about a lot of models, but they're going to have to make a lot more of them to serve this market and to meet those goals. The second is the charging infrastructure. And SoCalEd has announced some char- new charging infrastructure, 38,000 charging stations. That's still not going to be enough even in their service territory. So they need a lot more charging stations. And the other thing is on the back end, you can't just push for new car sales. You also have to have something like a cash for clunkers program like we used to have. So you can get some of those dirty cars off the road. So I think, yes, it can hold up legally. But on the other hand, we have to also make sure there are all these other provisions in place to make sure that it is successful. Yeah, I totally agree. So you can divide the world of automakers into two different groups. There's the five that have sided with California, Honda, Ford, Volkswagen, BMW, and Volvo. And then there are the rest of them who have vowed to fight California alongside the Trump administration. How are these groups of automakers responding to this new target? So I wouldn't classify it that way. In general, the reason it it went down those lines is because the five that sided with California have had emissions reductions over time. And the five that didn't have had emissions increases over time because they've been selling a lot more SUVs and pickup trucks. Um, But, you know, like for instance, GM has, you know, very strong market share in California electric vehicles uh, with the Chevy Bolt. And so, uh, and you can currently get one for like $99 a month on a lease. Um, So 
I think it really is more classified around the folks who've spent multiple billions of dollars on the EV transition and the folks who've not yet spent multiple billions of dollars on the transition. And, you know, like Ford, for instance, has spent a lot of money with Rivian on the F-150 along with the EV Mustang, but they haven't spent a lot of money actually on converting the rest of their fleet to electric vehicles. And now they've got a question in front of them, which is that, do they want to spend this huge amount of money uh, converting their entire fleet to electric vehicles? Or do they want to sit back and say, we'll just reduce our market share in California because like, we don't think we're going to get a return on that investment from our uh, from our shareholders. And so I do think there's a lot of play there. The other thing I'd say is that I think that the dollars that we're talking about here are gargantuan. I think people just have a really hard time wrapping their brain around it just because the numbers are so large. So when you think about California's car market, it's roughly like 2 million cars a year, right? So if you were to say that that's, you know, like something on the order of like $30,000 per car, right? Then you're talking about something on the order of like, what is that, $60 billion? Is that right? Um, So it's a lot of money every year that people are paying for cars. And so you could imagine that... um, that this is going to be paired with intense business model innovation. My sense is that you're going to see a huge move away from personal car ownership uh, during this transition towards, you know, sort of what we had thought about and talked about before with like Zipcar and some of that stuff. But, you know, it's sort of fizzled out. I think you're going to see a huge resurgence of a lot of this business model innovation. Yeah, I spoke with Austin Brown, who's the executive director of UC Davis's Policy Institute for Energy, Environment, and the Economy. And he is leading a study with three other universities to really look at how do you get to zero emission transportation. And I mean, it just covers everything from what are the characteristics of the market, what are the price trends for the length of ownership, how do we deal with this and how do we get there? So I think there's a lot of work being done exactly around that jigger. How much is it going to cost and how are we going to do it? And then how do you kind of change market and behavior? so that it will be successful. So California has the fifth biggest economy in the world, and it now joins well over a dozen countries that have planned to phase out gasoline cars by between 2030 and 2040. So it is in good company. Yes, Canada has 100% goal by 2040. France has the same. The UK, 100% by 2035. And Norway has the most aggressive, 100% by 2025. However, as Austin was telling me, those are subject, those goals are subject to change in leadership and change in politics. Whereas this goal in California in one to two years will actually be a legally binding commitment. So this could be seen as even better than those. Let's go to another major announcement, a couple of announcements. Uh, One by the world's largest retail chain by revenue, that all its electricity will be clean, all its delivery trucks will be electric, and all of its refrigeration will be net zero emissions Boy, that would be huge. I'm talking about Walmart. It plans to do this in 20 years. Um, But instead, this announcement got mostly quiet response. Maybe it's just because of the news cycle we're in. Maybe it's because Walmart has made some pretty big commitments before. But I thought that was kind of stunning. It didn't get a ton of press coverage. Google also made a significant further promise. This got some more press coverage. Instead of going net zero emissions on its electricity, as calculated on an annual basis, it is going to make sure that all the electricity it is using at any moment on any day is entirely clean. You know, this transition is happening in front of our eyes, and much of it is is being led by corporates now. There have been 
a number of major commitments unveiled by large companies in recent months, and they're very different than the commitments in the past. This is something that we have discussed. They're they're now not just based on credits or offsets or mushy sustainability language. They're targets that support real projects that get real electric vehicles or real electric forklifts into factories that get real renewable energy projects built that otherwise wouldn't get built. And then you got companies like Microsoft and Apple making similar net zero goals, talking about reducing you know, their carbon legacy, investing in direct air capture. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening. So let's focus on Walmart and Google first. Jigger, what did you make of the news from these companies? I know we're talking about very different targets, but can you just talk a little bit about what they announced? Yeah, I think that um, the Walmart one to me was actually more fascinating, although the Google one was bold as well. Walmart committed that they would actually uh, reach uh, net zero you know, emissions by 2040 without offsets, which I just think is a big deal, right? Yeah. I mean, I think people have been talking about offsets for a long time, and I've obviously railed against offsets on this podcast. I think I was proven right when a lot of those offsets went up in smoke in California the last few months, unfortunately. But it's just... I just think that when you think about that, it's just like two little words. People don't really like register them, but it's such a big deal. Separately, Walmart announced that they were um, going to restore at least 50 million acres of land and 1 million square miles of ocean by 2030, which I just think is so big. The, The other thing that they announced was they're going to be moving to, you know, green refrigerants for all of their HVAC, um, which I think that the reason I was so inspired by the Walmart announcement, although I think the Google announcement's amazing and we'll get into that, is because one, I think the Walmart announcement could easily be copied by a new Biden administration. Like literally the General Services Administration in the United States could just say, we're going to copy Walmart. Because what Walmart's doing is actually fixing supply chains in the United States. They're saying, carrier, train, if you want to serve us, you better have products that are using green refrigerants because we are not going to buy any more of your HFC 134A uh, products, right? Because those have like 5,000 times more greenhouse gas emissions than um, CO2. So I think that from a practicality standpoint, Walmart is basically saying, very similar things to rewiring America, which is every time we procure something, we're going to procure it green. And over the next 20 years, that means we're replacing everything and it's going to become green, which I think is amazing. Google's announcement, on the other hand, is different. Google is saying that they are basically procuring more electricity on an annual basis than anyone else in the world, along with their friends at Apple and Facebook, et cetera, because data centers is where it's at right? That is all load growth in the world today. And so Google is saying, as a result of being responsible for all of that load growth, we are also going to take full responsibility for the future of the electricity grid, which I think is a huge step from where they were 12 years ago when I was punching them in the face to try to get them to do this. And so they are actually funding an extraordinary amount of work around what is the next generation wholesale market look like? How do we procure green electrons in markets that don't have independent system operators like the Southeast? They have done amazing things in 
Taiwan around opening up their markets. And so when you think about where their footprint is around the world and how much brain power they're bringing to this, I mean, the South Carolina uh, announcements recently around um, the access to corporate VPPAs, et cetera, there is all because of Google. They are funding a huge amount of policy work. And this is going to come to a head next year, which I don't know that we have to talk about today, but they're looking for very specific changes in the Federal Power Act to allow them to do this nationwide. And they are funding all of the brain power on doing that, um, which I think is going to clash with the clean energy standard in the future. But like that is a different set of changes than what Walmart announced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much to go through. I guess first, Jigger, are you buying stock in green refrigerant? I should. You know what? With one of the main green refrigerants that that uh, Greenpeace got on board with uh, ten years ago was propane. Propane is funny enough one of the best green refrigerants in the world, um, but it's a fossil fuel, so people are like, uh, "That's not green." Hmm. But in fact, I guess it is. So a gray refrigerant, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what hydrogen produced from natural gas is gray hydrogen but you don't burn it you just use it as a right, fluid right, transfer right, right. so Catherine what stood out to you from these two announcements Jigger described they're two very different announcements but any any particular details rise for you yeah, yeah. So on Walmart, there were a couple of other things. So they're definitely going to have all of their global facilities um, supplied by renewables by 2035. But the other huge piece of it is transportation. So they just announced that they ordered 130 Tesla heavy duty, the big trucks. That is huge. That's the biggest order Tesla's got to have for that. So and that's the Walmart Canada branch. But that is pretty cool, too, that they're going to electrify. And one thing that I think that Google and Walmart have been working together on from the policy side and in a similar vein is try to open up all these corporate PPAs in regulatory and legislative proceedings. So Walmart did this in Georgia um, to open up their corporate renewable energy purchase program. And I think Google was very involved in that as well. So I talked to, and I know Jigger and I both talked to Michael Terrell, who um, is the director of operations and head of market strategy at Google, but he runs this 24-7 program, which, as he says, this is not offsets. We've already got to 100% renewables, if you count it that way. We've made it every year except for these. So 60% of their hours, they have these hours that you can't account for. That means you need to get to 24-7 to have not net zero, but zero, zero. <laughs> so they're looking at what is what are we going to do for the rest? And they, they still think that ramping up renewables will get us get them maybe 80% of the way. But that last 20%, 10, 20%, they are really looking at the demand side. And they're looking at public policy. Again, as Jigger had said, they're changing. They're also looking at increasing transactions, both the demand and supply side. And then they're also looking at technology. So Google is able to do that with Nest, with machine learning. So Jigger referred to the data centers. What they're trying to figure out is like, can the data centers operate during the times when you're getting clean power off the grid and not during the other times so that every single kilowatt hour that they use, and it's a lot, it's 12 terawatt hours a year, um, growing 20% a year, um, that every single kilowatt hour that they use is from a clean source. So I, I agree with Jigger. I think on both counts, this is really big. I'm more familiar with the Google announcement and, you know, we've covered their incremental progress over the years. I mean, I, I've been covering Google since, 
you know, 2006 when they installed the largest commercial solar system in the country at that time. And since then, they've made a lot of different types of investments in renewable energy. Some were experimental and didn't work out, but ultimately they decided, hey, we're going to go and just buy gobs and gobs of renewable electricity and start negotiating contracts. And they are now the largest corporate buyer of renewable energy in the world. And what I think is really remarkable about this announcement is that they talk about the limitations of what they do very openly. Like they have said, yes, since 2012, we have gotten 100% renewable electricity, but we're doing this on an annual accounting basis. And we know that that's, there are limitations to that. And if we want to do something about climate change, we have to make sure that you know every email you send, every bit and byte that goes through our data center has to be matched with the renewable electron. And we understand how difficult that is. And so these are you know very real steps they're taking to get to that world um and 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 some of the more interesting stuff isn't just the scale of what they're investing in in renewables it's actually like the software that they're developing to control computation inside their data centers to match it with grid conditions and their own form of demand response and i know that they've made a lot of headway on that carbon intelligent computing piece um so i feel like we've really entered a new phase of this stuff and it's not just google obviously i mean walmart making these very real hard announcements that have reverberating impacts to its supply chain. Microsoft saying it's going to eliminate its carbon legacy and invest in direct air capture. These are completely different investments than we have seen in the past. And it's very thrilling. Yeah. The other one that I was watching that I um, thought was really impressive was AT&T's announcement, because I think that I just think it's different when you, we talked about this with Microsoft's announcements. I'm a huge fan of Apple's announcement too, which I thought was huge and bold. Um, but the tech companies, basically their profits from perceived costs of like, you know, and I think it's gigagobs, not gobs of renewable energy. I think it's like uh, teragobs. Um, I, you know, I think that their profits are like literally unaffected and no one notices. It's like, uh, instead of making $20 billion this quarter, we made $19.9 billion this quarter. Right. And so it's just a different like mindset, like no one cares. But I think when you think like AT&T or Walmart or others, when they start making these kinds of announcements, I mean, they are measuring their profit margins in tenths of a percentage point because they're in very like low margin businesses, right? This is not like data centers. Like they basically are selling you stuff and like grocery stores make, you know, one to 3% net margins, right? And so Walmart doesn't make 38% net margins, right? And so I just think that the nuances here matter around these mainline um, mainstream companies making these announcements because when they make these announcements, they are truly saying, that this will have no perceptible impact on our net margins, that we think we can do this without any additional costs. And in fact, it probably will save us a lot of money and risk over time, where that's not necessarily the message that comes out of Google's announcement or Apple's announcement. A lot of their announcements are like, this is an engineering marvel that we're capable of doing. Yeah. And none of these announcements are going to work, as you say, unless it works from a business perspective. None of these people are going to lose money by doing this, which you know, just kind of shows you that we're kind of here. The clean economy is here. Another one that I noticed was GM, which is the number one largest manufacturing purchaser of renewables, just announced um, a big PPA for 180 megawatts of solar in Arkansas. 
And yeah. this will run two of their lines, 100% of the electricity at a line in Missouri and one in Michigan, and then um, part of one, another one in Michigan. I mean, this is a big deal, and they're not going to do it if it doesn't make business sense. Yeah, the only other one I wanted to highlight um, was Morgan Stanley's announcement. I think it's a really big deal for a finance company to not just say, we're going to you know, stop funding bad stuff, which is what folks have been saying uh, for a long time. But in fact, to say, we are going to be net zero carbon from all of our financing activities. Um, because there's a lot of like mild activities that you take on the financing side that include carbon emissions. I mean, even Generate has some like backup natural gas generators and other stuff that's in our portfolio. And for you to say, we're going to net all of that out and make sure that like we're actually um, not, you know, adding more carbon to the atmosphere over time. That's a hefty lift for a finance company uh, to say. Yeah. And on that front, Swiss Re, the insurance company, just increased its internal carbon price that will dictate investment decisions to $100 a ton. We're in very serious territory here. So Jigger, what's your free electron? So this week, I wanted to talk about innovation, which is weird for me because I'm mostly talking about deployment. But Andy Barnes and uh, John Buttles came out with a great uh, op-ed in Real Clear Energy that talked about how when you think about wartime uh, deployment, right, when we think about wartime footing, which I think we've talked about in this podcast several times, part of that wartime footing is innovation, right? We talk mostly about deployment because we make you know, millions of airplanes and millions of tanks and millions of cars. And in this case, it's going to be millions of solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. But that the innovation part of this and figuring out how you actually fund the Manhattan Project and all those things shouldn't be lost. And it's not the same thing as ARPA-E. It's not the same thing as some of the things that we have today. It's bigger, right? There are, there are still areas of decarbonization that we actually have no idea how to decarbonize. For instance, like steel and cement manufacturing. You know, there's one steel plant that uses hydrogen, fantastic, but it's not everything. Or like, you know, airplanes. You know, Airbus made that great announcement around a hydrogen-powered plane this last week. Awesome. But I don't think we all think it's on track to actually being 100% clean energy. And so I do think it's important for all of us who are, you know, have now finally won this battle on deployment versus innovation. Uh, by the way, it's deployment. Um, that like, you know, that we should still try to figure out how we actually put huge amounts of dollars behind innovation to get the last bits of decarbonization done in 2040 and 2050. We have to invest now to be able to get that done. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the last 20%, everyone admits, is going to be the hardest. But what that means is that we still have a massive amount that we can do with today's technologies and and business models. I think one of the better people who can articulate this is Jesse Jenkins, who is obviously focused a lot on the electricity sector, but he's also focused historically on transportation as well. And he's done some great research on what that last 20% of decarbonization in the electricity sector actually uh, would look like. And he has a very nuanced approach of, you know, what we can do today. Most of what we can do today is available right now. And, you know, what that will look like to get that last 20%. No, Princeton better be uh, thanking the lucky stars that they snagged him. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, I'm just going to pile on to Jiggers because mine is also about a big idea. And I've talked about this before, the National Climate Bank. 
Uh, so really excited because it was added as an amendment, a $20 billion amendment to the Moving Forward Act uh, back in fourth of July, right before the 4th of July weekend. And it was the name of the National Climate Bank, because it is not a bank, was changed to the Clean Energy and Sustainability Accelerator. And that's what it is. It's really an accelerator for deployment. And it passed again in the base bill, the big energy base bill in the House, again at $20 billion with, over, with almost 100 signatures of groups um, that support this. This is really gaining some traction. And meanwhile, all of these state, and there are over a dozen state and local green banks, all these are announcing new ones. So more funding for Michigan. There's one in Colorado now. One in California was just started. Um, There's one that was just announced in Canada. And we see this as a real trend of let's get something in place that can really get the money out the door quickly that isn't hampered by bureaucracy that has some independence and that can really move some of these technologies out the door so we can get some of those things those innovative items funded through a moonshot program but then also have some real funding put behind making sure that we can you know build in tools with uh, private sector finance that can get all these projects done I would nominate you as the chairwoman of the Federal Green Bank. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) I am so not a banker, just to be clear. I am neither a lawyer nor a banker. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm kind of a one-trick pony when it comes to free electrons. I'm basically always listening to podcasts. So much of what I'm thinking about comes from, you know, uh, audio programming and what I heard recently directly pertains to what we've been talking about on this show, which is Gavin Newsom's plans for transitioning to electric vehicles. And Kara Swisher, who is the founder of Recode, a very prominent tech journalist, a former Wall Street Journal reporter, has a new podcast out with the New York Times op-ed piece. She's an op-ed writer with the New York Times now. Um, and the podcast is called Sway. And in the first couple of episodes, she had Gavin Newsom on talking directly and extensively about his electric car plan. And she had Elon Musk, who talked about AI and all sorts of future scenarios, but also the you know the, the role of clean energy, where batteries are going, the electric car market. And I was struck by both of those interviews because they were the lead interviews for this new show at the New York Times. It's reaching a much greater audience. And we've reached a moment where these conversations are seeping into the mainstream in new and interesting ways. And many of them have been in clean energy circles or in Silicon Valley circles, but they're now hitting a much bigger audience. And so that normalization feels very important to me. Oh, wow. I can't wait to listen to that. I wish I had listened to that one before our episode today. (laughs) (laughs) The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixes the show. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support us, the best way to support us is to click through links to our sponsors and to go to Apple and leave us a rating and review or to send a link to a friend or colleague. Um, Hit us up on Twitter if you want to suggest show ideas. People send us a lot of messages on the Energy Gang account. We do read them. Uh, We can't respond to everybody, but we definitely read your messages and look at all your tweets at us. And so, you know, whatever feedback you want to give us on the show or suggest story ideas, it, it is coming into us and 
we're often talking about it and and helping inform how we choose topics. Um, Thanks a lot. Go find us anywhere you get podcasts if you don't already subscribe. And we will find you here with us next week, as always. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.